0: I'm going to invite you this week to open your Bibles up to Revelation 13. And we'll be picking up where we left off last week at verse 11. Last week we were given some details about this man of sin, commonly called the Antichrist. We know that he will fulfill both meanings of this prefix anti. Anti means, of course, opposed to but it also means in the place of, and this Antichrist will fulfill both of those meanings. We'll be seeing a very overt example of him counterfeiting the work of Christ in our text this morning. But before we get there, I want to give you an outline of some of the major characteristics of this man that we gleaned from last week. So we've got this beast from the sea. This is the Antichrist. He's probably of Gentile descent. We see that in verse 1. He controls a federation of nations, also verse 1. He is a what Daniel sees as a composite creature of past empires. And we see that in verse 2. He's empowered by Satan, also verse 2. He receives a mortal wound to his right eye and his right arm. We see that in verse 3 and also in Zechariah eleven seventeen, which we'll revisit again today. The worship of this beast is actually Satan worship. That is from verse 4. This man is cunning with his words. He's got a big mouth, and he tends to use it. That's verse 5, and many other places in Scripture, by the way. He is in power for 42 months. That's in verse 5. He overcomes the saints, and that one catches us off guard oftentimes. He overcomes the saints, but that is not the church. That's verse 7. He will be worshiped by all whose names, quote, have not been written in the book of life. That is verse 8. So we have all of these many different characteristics of this man of sin that we saw last week. This week, we will add a few more details to this list, and we'll also be introduced to this other part of this satanic duo, the beast from the earth. And the beast from the earth is who is commonly called the false prophet, and we'll see some details about him as well. Verse 11 is going to introduce this beast from the earth to us, who is similar to but distinct from the first beast. And we'll keep a list of characteristics the scripture ascribes to this man as we go through. So let's start by reading through Revelation 13, verse 11 through 13 first, the first three verses. And in just these three verses, we find six characteristics of this beast that are worth noting. So let's look at those. Then I saw another beast, Coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So, in these first three verses this morning we find these six characteristics, and we've got them listed for you on the screen. He's likely a Jew, and we see this by the phrase, coming up out of the earth. We'll talk about that more in a second. He will present himself as a lamb, but is actually harmful. He had two horns like a lamb. He receives his words from Satan directly. He will act like a lamb, but he speaks the words of Satan, and he spoke like a dragon. He is also empowered and given authority by Satan through Antichrist, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He will function as the high priest of this religion that the Antichrist curates and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. He's kind of this high priestly figure of the Antichrist religion. He is also able to perform miracles. He performs great signs. So just in these three verses, we have this figure that we're building in our minds, and we're understanding what this guy is going to come do. Verse 11, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Remember, this is a vision that John is being treated to. John saw this second beast coming up out of the earth, not the sea this time. And many Bible teachers juxtapose this coming up out of the earth with the first beast coming up out of the sea. This beast does not come out of the sea of peoples like the first beast, which means that he will not be of mixed nationality, but he will be Jewish, and many people agree with that. Ezekiel 21-25 refers to him as the Prince of Israel. That's another name that the Antichrist is referred to as. Ezekiel 28-10, in a prophetic message God has for this coming leader, actually talking to the Antichrist, God says, you shall die the death of the uncircumcised. Now, it's interesting that he he says you'll die the death of the uncircumcised if he was uncircumcised. This seems to point to the fact that he would be of Jewish descent, of the circumcision. In John 5.43, Jesus says to the Jews, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And... This one, to come, in his own name, is obviously a reference to this pseudo-Christ. Remember when we recently talked about the difference between the words alos and heteros? They're both translated in English as another, but they come from these two different Greek words. Sometimes we see another in our English text, it's translated from alos, Sometimes it's translated from heteros. Allos is denoting another of the same kind or type. Heteros describes another of a different kind. When Jesus said, if another comes in his own name, he uses the word allos. We know that Jesus was a Jew. Therefore, if another allos of the same kind is to present himself as the Christ, that would seem to refer to him being a Jew. And of course, that's not conclusive evidence, I wouldn't say, but it does force us to consider the possibility that this man will be Jewish. He had two horns like a lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb with horns? Probably not. Maybe an anomaly out there. But probably not. Lambs are not usually seen with horns. Since we don't expect lambs to have horns, this begs the question why this man is pictured as such. In Scripture, horns represent authority, and a lamb is a creature that symbolizes meekness. We know Jesus is often seen symbolically as a lamb. It seems that this false prophet will appear as a lamb, but he'll have sinister intentions, and he will be granted authority. Back in Matthew 7.15, during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he warns against false prophets, saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. So we have this idea of false prophets, funny enough, coming as sheep in appearance. But they're actually ravenous wolves. And this idea of a false prophet appearing as a sheep is not new. Paul also warns the Ephesian elders about the coming problem of false teachers using this same illustration. It's recorded in Acts 20, verse 17. Paul tells the Ephesian elders, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So we have this idea again, false teachers presenting themselves as sheep, as part of the flock, but really wanting to draw the flock away and draw them to themselves. And our text says that he spoke like a dragon. He had two horns like a lamb, And spoke like a dragon. Now, the dragon was already identified for us in Revelation 12, verse 9. And it's identified as Satan. So we can understand this dragon to be Satan. So we're seeing that this figure will be given his speech literally by Satan. He will deceive the world by acting like a lamb, presenting himself as a lamb, a peacekeeper but speaking the words of Satan, he'll take over. Verse 12. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, this verse shows us a couple of very important things. First, we get a job description of this false prophet. His job is to cause people to worship the Antichrist, the first beast. And like I said, he is basically in this high priestly role. Second, Antichrist and the false prophet are not against religion. Take note of that. The Antichrist and the false prophet are not against religion. However, They are against a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is what they're against, and that's what they're trying to keep people from. If they can keep you away from Jesus by instituting another type of religious system, that's what they're going to do, and that's the plan. To worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Some scholars view this as a counterfeit to the resurrection of Christ. This (laughs) pseudo-Christ presenting himself as Christ will go through this pseudo-resurrection. And there are reasons that I don't think that it's actually going to be a resurrection, and we'll take a look at that. But as far as it being a counterfeit resurrection, that certainly seems like what's going on here. Um, We have this beast who rises up, presents himself as a lamb, just like Christ, coming in peace, and through peace, he takes over. He sustains a deadly wound. Now, it doesn't say that he's actually killed, but he does receive this mortal wound. And it says that this wound was healed. It sounds like this wound will be so severe that it will be easy to pass it off as him dying and coming back. But in reality, I think that Satan probably heals him and presents it in some sort of a deceptive way as a resurrection. Now, Satan doesn't have the power to raise someone from the dead. He does not possess that power. So how is this done, well, first, I want to get some background on what Satan is able to do, what he's capable of. So if you remember back in Exodus 7, we have this account of Moses appealing to Pharaoh in Egypt. Again and again, Moses asked the Pharaoh, hey, let the Hebrews, the Israelites, go so that we can worship God and please him. Again and again, Pharaoh does not comply. And the first couple times, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then, side note, the later attempts that Moses makes, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So the first few times, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The last few times, God strengthened Pharaoh in the position that he had already chosen. When Moses brought the plagues Onto Egypt. Pharaoh had his little team of magicians, and they're called magicians. That's the translation that we have in the New King James, at least. But they're really practitioners of the occult. They're satanic individuals, and they possess this power from Satan. And they are able to duplicate some of the plagues that God brings through Moses. So they do actually possess some power. And we should not approach this as being parlor tricks. There's nothing in the text that indicates that the duplications of God's miracles were faked in any way. It seems that they actually had these powers and abilities. And this was a display of Satan's abilities and the occultic power of the Egyptian magicians. And so they were able to duplicate turning the water of Nile into blood and bringing frogs out of the Nile. Those are the plagues. They could also change their staffs into snakes. That was a little bit before this account. But they were unable to turn the dust of the earth into lice. That was something that God was able to do, but Pharaoh's magicians could not replicate. What's the difference between those first two and the third plague? There's one very distinct difference. The third is what I would call a miracle of creation. Satan does not have the power to bring life from non-life. God alone possesses that power. So water into blood, okay, he can do that. Bringing frogs out of the Nile, okay, you can do that. Turning inanimate dust from the ground, and it seems this is literal, into lice, non-life to life. He can't do that. And this is one of the big reasons that I believe this resurrection will be completely counterfeit. It will not be a literal resurrection of the Antichrist. Antichrist could sustain a wound that appears to be fatal, but is not actually fatal. And Satan could certainly heal him of that wound and pass it off as a resurrection. And this would certainly captivate people's attention. You know, in our world, even today, everybody's looking for a good story. You'll turn on the news and there's all this sensationalism. Everything's being sensationalized, and everything is big news, honestly. And this would be a wonder that would deceive many, many people into following this Antichrist. So all of this paints this picture of the false prophet being an apostate Jew who disguises his true intentions until the Antichrist proclaims himself to be God. And by then, he would have already deceived the Jewish people into a treaty with Antichrist. And at the midway point in the tribulation, the Antichrist would uncover his true intentions and the false prophet would uncover his true intentions with him. So kind of all at once, this thing unfolds. The abomination of desolation occurs. The Antichrist sets himself to up to be worshiped as God, as told in Second Thessalonians 2. And then the Jews realize that they've been deceived. They flee to the wilderness. They're kept there for 1260 days. They're protected. Now let's look at verse 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. It seems that signs and wonders are this false prophet's go-to move. That's kind of his ace in the hole here. He will amaze with supernatural displays of power. It says he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So he makes sure people see what he's doing. It's no good if nobody sees it. And it shouldn't take us by surprise that Satan can empower this false prophet to call down fire. In the first chapter of Job, Satan uses this same method to destroy Job's sheep and his servants. It says that fire came down from heaven. We know from our context in Job one that Satan had already talked it out with God. God had allowed Satan To call down that fire on Job and his house. So it shouldn't take us by surprise that he's calling down fire here. Um, And this is also reminiscent of Elijah's ministry. You know, we talked about Elijah several weeks ago, but if you remember in 1 Kings 18, with that whole incident with the prophets of Baal and trying to decide who is the real God, Elijah called down fire from heaven. To show that Yahweh was God. And God didn't allow Satan to duplicate at that time on behalf of Baal. So it was a it was used as proof that hey, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is the true God. Now, here in the tribulation, God is going to allow Satan to call down fire. This apparent reference to Elijah is another piece of circumstantial evidence that kind of builds on the idea that Elijah will be one of these two witnesses. And I think that it'll be Moses and Elijah. We've talked about that. Verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. We should all be familiar with the phrase those who dwell on the earth by now because we've looked at it before in pretty good detail. And this is the same phrase used here katoikeo, dwell in the sense that they're comfortable in the earth. We do not dwell on the earth in that sense. We're not comfortable here because we know that we're just passing through. So believers are not in this category of dwelling on the earth. And I think that's especially true of this time of the tribulation. Turn with me real quick to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 9 through 12, and this also confirms the fact that this lawless one will bring about counterfeit miracles. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12 reads, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that they should believe the lie, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What a difficult place we put ourselves in when we look to signs and wonders as validation of a message. We paint ourselves into a corner because signs and wonders are not the most sure testimony. What is the most sure testimony? What is the best way to validate a message? It's comparing it to the word of God, to the written record that we already have. I like what Tim LaHaye says in his discussion of this verse in his book, Revelation Unveiled. He says, This predicted demonstration of supernatural miraculous power should warn us of the significant truth that the mere display of supernatural power does not suffice as evidence that a matter or practice originates with God. I love the way he put that. Supernatural power does not suffice as evidence that a matter or practice originates with God because power can be displayed from both sides. And although I don't believe that we as believers will be around to see these events take place on earth, there will always be deceivers of some sort who want to separate us from the flock of God. We must validate every message against the standard of God's word, not the standard of our own experiences. Because our own experiences are extremely subjective. God's word is unchanging. In Acts 17, 11, Why were the Bereans more noble than those in Thessalonica? Because they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They didn't just take what Paul taught them at face value, but they diligently searched the scripture to see if what he was teaching matched the revealed word of God. And some may argue, well, Jesus relied on his miracles to validate his ministry. While that is true in part, Jesus isn't here today. That's the first big thing. Jesus is not here today. But there was something that he relied on more than his miracles to validate his message and to validate who he was. What was that? Scripture. He relied on the prophecies that were already recorded in the Old Testament to validate who he was. So even then, the miracles, yes, they did come from God. They were validation that he was the Son of God. But he relies more heavily on Scripture. In John 5.39, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. The scriptures that the Jews already had, they were already pouring hours and hours over. They testified of Jesus Christ. And that's what he points to. Even more than his miracles, he relied on scripture to validate his message and his position in the world. by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. There are overtones in this phrase that point back to this statue that was erected by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. And we're probably familiar with that story. He forced the people to worship this image, but the men faithful to God did not worship it, and they were sentenced to death. And you may know these men as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a very popular Sunday school story, and we've all heard it before, but this idol that's erected by Nebuchadnezzar is a foreshadowing of what the Antichrist will do. And there's been conjectures that Nebuchadnezzar was the Antichrist, Nero, Domitian, Hitler, Stalin, all of these figures. There's been conjectures. But that's not true, because there's a lot that has to happen before this man of sin is revealed. One of those, I would argue is the removal of the church, the restrainer, and the influence that the church has on the world through the Holy Spirit, the real restrainer. But the Holy Spirit is exemplified in Christians, and that effect, in effect, restrains the work of this lawless one. So when that restrainer is taken out, then the man of sin can be revealed. You can read the rest of 2 Thessalonians 2 to get more context on that. But now in this yet future Babylon, the false prophet will direct worship to this image of the Antichrist. We're not given many details about this image, but what we are given is a bit startling. And in verse 15, we get this detail about the image of Antichrist. He was granted power, that is, the false prophet was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So yeah, that takes us off guard, probably. I don't know exactly how this is going to be accomplished, but it could be done in two big ways that I see. Basically, with technology, an image of the beast could be made to appear lifelike. And it could also be made to appear to speak. Now, you could do this with holograms, animatronics, any other sorts of technology that are very available today. And I don't think it would be too hard to make that happen. But I think that the more likely explanation. Is much more supernatural. And I think that that's what the text is saying. I don't see any necessity for technology here. And in some places, technology seems to fit well. I I don't know that this is the spot for that. It seems that the false prophet tells other people to make this image as a collective effort it seems like this will be a setup for the wonder of giving this image breath. And in a supernatural and occultic display of power, the false prophet will give breath to this image so it can speak and, quote, cause as many as would not worship it to be killed. So it seems like the false prophet entices other people to create this image. So he's not actually creating it himself, but then he's given the power to give it breath. Breath is translated from pneuma in the Greek. That is also the word that's translated as spirit. There's something lifelike that he gives this image. A little bit unsettling. But even worse, it says that uh, it could both speak and the image could cause as many as would not worship it to be killed. Something about the image intrinsically is playing into people being killed. And I have no idea how that's going to work out. I don't know (laughs) really what this is saying. So maybe if you look into it further, you can let me know. But regardless of the specifics, we know that being a Gentile believer during the tribulation means persecution and death. That's the long and short of it. Um, Whether the image causes the killing or the Antichrist himself, we do know that the Antichrist will persecute and will kill Christians And he prefers the method of decapitation, and we'll see that later on in Revelation. Verse 16 and 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So 16 is saying he, being the false prophet, causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. There is no protected social class from this mark, from this beast system. Everyone is subjected to this mark and to his worship if they comply. If they don't comply, they cannot buy or sell. They cannot engage in any commerce. And they're put to death. To receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This mark will likely be an ode to his seemingly deadly wound that was healed. And Zechariah eleven seventeen. I told you we would revisit this. That verse gives a physical description of Antichrist. It says, a sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. Interesting, to say the least, that this mark is placed on the forehead, right around the eye, and on the right hand, reminiscent of the arm that has withered. This mark is an identification with Antichrist. That is the main function of this mark. I also believe that those who take the mark will willingly identify themselves with the beast. Sure, there's going to be deception, and there will be a strong delusion that people will be given over to. But I actually think that this mark will have to be taken willingly, partially because if you take the mark, you cannot be saved. That is a personal choice. And I think that that's what we'll see. Well, not we. I think that's what they'll see. And I actually think that this mark is a bit overthought nowadays and, like everything else, sensationalized. People are concerned about their credit cards being the mark of the beast. And... Do not worry about your credit card being the mark of the beast. Now, you can be afraid of it for other reasons, but not because it's the mark of the beast. People are freaking out about barcodes, RFID chips, tracking implants, vaccines, you name it. There's a whole host of scary things out there. But to be completely honest with you, I don't necessarily think these ideas are on the right track. Now, there is some nuance to that, and we'll get into it. The word translated mark in our English Bible is from the Greek word karagma. And this is speaking of a stamp or an imprinted mark. And it seems to be talking about something like a brand. You're probably familiar with a cattle brand. Heat up this hot metal press it against the skin, and it burns a mark, a brand, into the cattle. It identifies the cattle with its owner. That's the whole point of a brand. You've heard the the phrase, trust your neighbors but brand your cattle? Yeah. So this is talking about something, a mark, a brand, something of that nature. It identifies the beast's followers. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Since the beast controls the world commerce by this time, he will use that to leverage and to multiply his following. No one can engage in commercial activity without taking this mark. And it doesn't have to be something that's super technologically advanced. There can be a rule put in place. Hey, if somebody comes to you in the grocery store, does not have the mark, you don't let them purchase their food. That's all it takes. It can be a simple brand on the hand or on the forehead. If they don't have it, sorry, you can't buy. It can be as simple as that, or it can be, you know, whatever else, a tracking implant, whatever you want to think it is. No one may buy or sell unless he has the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 14 is going to tell us that anyone with the mark will suffer the wrath of God. So if you take the mark, you can buy and sell, but you can't be saved. This forces true believers to provide food and other necessary resources for themselves. And I think this is probably a big part why the Jews who are protected in the wilderness will be able to stay there long-term. They'll be a community. They'll be self-sufficient. They'll be provided for by God. They don't have to engage in outside commerce to survive. And then we see... Other people worried about this mark being a PIN number or something like a social security number, something along those lines. But they overlook a key element to the mark. It's not your number that we need to be worried about. It's his number that we need to be worried about. His number is the one to watch out for. And I was reading a little bit this week and... Um, A quote stuck out to me from Tim LaHaye in his same book, Revelation Unveiled. And there are reasons why we cannot apply this quote today. And here's what he said. He said, one can scarcely imagine the pressures of having to possess such a mark in order to secure the necessary food for his family. We can't say that today. This book was published in, I think, 1999, long before this COVID scare, long before the mandated vaccinations, the vaccine passports, all of that. And so he could make this statement. We could scarcely imagine the government having this much control over people. Well, here it is. And I'm not telling you that the COVID vaccine or any other vaccine is this mark. But I do think that it's probably some type of preliminary run to see how the public reacts to this kind of thing. This kind of control and pressure from the government. Now, don't go crazy. You know, like I said, this tends to be over-sensationalized. Anyways. And that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. People who know nothing about the Bible know this. 666 is the number of the beast. And You look around culture right now, and you'll see people who think they're cool using this number and, you know, put it on sweaters, shoes, whatever. They think it's cool because it's not real to them yet. But when this is presented by the Antichrist, it will be all too real. It will no longer be cool. It will be necessary to engage in commerce. Uh, but it will have a a whole different tone to it. So I I just I'm very sad for those people who who take it as a joke or take it too lightly because it is very real and it will be much more real to them. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. In Revelation, we've seen, I literally think that there are countless sevens in Revelation. I think you could make an exhaustive list and still find one more. The seven represents completion. The Lord rested from creation on the seventh day. The seventh day is set apart as the Sabbath the seventh week, the seventh month, seventh year. All of these sevens denote completion. What is six? One less than seven. It is incomplete. Incompletion, it is the number of a man. Man was created on the sixth day of creation. And there are all these references to six being connected with man. 666 is the perfect incompletion. It is everything that is humanity. It's evil. This number is 666. And I had a guy call me many months ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. He was asking about numerology. And he was curious if we taught numerology in our church. I just told him, yeah, I mean, some numbers are symbolic of certain things in scripture. And we see that just from a repetitive pattern of their usage. And there's no doctrine based on it. We're not telling you it's a matter of salvation. There's, there's very low importance on it. But yeah, I mean, if it's there, we'll talk about it. And at the time I said, well, I'm not really certain that there's any place in the Bible that specifically says this number relates to this in numerology. I stand corrected because this verse says that six is the number of a man. that's now, that is the only verse that I'm aware of in the Bible. And I'm open for correction as well. So, if you have something else. This 666, complete incompletion, is what the pseudo-Christ, this Antichrist, is going to perpetuate. Now, there's been a lot of conjectures, again, about who the Antichrist either was, which I don't think is correct, or will be, and most all of those are dependent on some kind of calculation of a number. Somehow they twist his name or something he stands for to add up to 666. And there is something to be said for this practice. It's called gamatria, and it's this idea that letters are connected to numbers, and you can add them up, and they can get you somewhere. This is common in Hebrew writing, and even the Greek has this set of numbers that are correlated with their alphabet. In fact, a little fun fact when the scribes were copying the Torah, parts of the Old Testament, they would write it out. Once they were done writing it out, they would go back and add up all of the letters, all of the numbers which correlated with their letters that they wrote. If that number was inconsistent with what they knew that text should add up to, they'd burn the text and start over. Very precise. Now, English does not have a numerical system attached to it. If you see an idea from anybody that uses English to calculate this number, you can pretty much dismiss it outright. Because there's no... Received system where English letters correlate with numbers. There is, however, in Hebrew and Greek. So just be mindful of that. But even in Hebrew and Greek, there's so many different ways to add these numbers up to, you know, we say if you're in the computer world, you can torture the data long enough to where it'll confess. Whatever you want. So if you try hard enough, I'm sure you could get anyone's name to add up to 666. It's been done with Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, pretty much any Antichrist-like figure in history. But it's really pointless, guys. It's, It's pointless. Because, one... don't think that we'll be here to see this man be revealed. I don't think that we'll be here. Now, since we see these events getting closer and closer, since we see this world order trying to form, that tells us that we're close. Our taking up, for lack of a better word, the rapture. We'll just call it what it is. (laughs) The rapture comes between now and whenever this guy starts to arise. We know that before this guy shows up on the scene, this world system will start to coalesce. We're seeing the beginnings of that coalescence. That means that the rapture is even sooner. That should be exciting that should inform how we live our lives. The idea that Christ is coming soon, that you're gonna meet him face-to-face soon, that should have an impact on how you live. So we put a lot of attention in culture, even in scholarly circles on this antichrist and while it is interesting to study, you know, we've taken a couple of weeks to look at it here. Do not let this pseudo Christ distract you from the real Christ. Because he is the one that holds all of the power. The antichrist is given power for 42 months. All right, so what? When he's done, the real Christ is coming back. And he is coming with a sword coming from his mouth. He's coming to take back what's his. He's the one with the real power, the real authority, and he is the one with which we have to do. So don't let this this poser take you away from the true, verified Christ. Let's wrap our study up this morning in a word of prayer.